If you have your Bible this morning, would you turn with me to John chapter 3? John chapter 3, and while you're turning, let me say it's so good to see Roger Hilliard and his wife Heather and their family here today from La Follette, is it La Follette, Tennessee. We both served together, both on the staff with Dr. Clarence Sexton at Temple Baptist and Crown College and knew each other during those days and had a great time knowing him and serving alongside him. You know, you know a man if you work with one, and I worked with him, and what a great man he is. God is using him now, pastoring a wonderful church there in La Follette, Tennessee, up there where the mountains are big and green and rivers are flowing. It's East Tennessee, and he's in a great spot, and I'm so grateful for how God is using him. But they're on vacation, and I told him I'm on vacation too, but for some reason I'm working here today. I don't know, but... Uh, we have taken a little vacation this week. I got out and, and uh, got some sun. I did, and I put plenty of suntan lotion on. Last thing you want is a preacher that's all beat red, you know, because he's been out in the sun too long. But I forgot about my head. Sun goes through your hair and gets your scalp. I'm burned up here. I look good here, but I'm burned up here, all right? And so if I start scratching my head, don't worry. I do not have lice. That sunburn's starting to peel, and so pray for me, I, I tell you. But uh, we're, we've had a great time, a great time uh, being on vacation and uh, love the, the fact we can be here at Central Baptist with you folks. John chapter 3, I want you to look at a very important yet interesting verse. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. You know the passage. You must be born again. You must be born again. If you're going to see the kingdom of heaven... You must be born again. How is this possible? Because of what he tells us in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Notice, if you would, please, the phrase, Jesus saying, as Moses lifted up the serpent, Lifted up the serpent. I want to preach this morning on the lifted serpent. The lifted serpent. Would you turn to Numbers chapter 21? We go to the actual story Christ was referring to. One that is familiar in our Old Testament knowledge, but let's go back and revisit. Numbers chapter 21. We find ourselves in an interesting spot here in this story, and you know probably the story well. But it's when Israel had rebelled and gotten angry directly at God. Oh, they were mad at Moses too, but this was a direct anger toward God. And the Lord just had had enough, and, in, and because of their rebellion, he sent to them serpents, snakes, crawling on the ground, finding their victims, biting them with a lethal bite, and people began to die and they went to Moses and said, Moses, you've got to do something. People are dying everywhere. And so Moses goes to God and begins to pray. And God gives him the, the answer. He gives them uh, an, a, a mercy, a way out, a way of rescue from these lethal bites of the snakes. And, uh, and God, Jesus Christ, looks at this story and says, Now, as Moses 
took that serpent, that brazen serpent, and lifted it up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I want to preach this morning on the lifted serpent. Would you notice with me in verse 4? And they journeyed, this is Numbers 21, verse 4, from Mount Hor, uh, by the way of the Red Sea, to compass the land of Edom. The soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. Our soul loatheth, loatheth rather, this light bread. That was that manna from on high. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. That's the end of the story. What comes next is to be understood, is to be predicted, is to be really of less importance, because why? God has given the remedy. There is a plan of rescue. There is a plan, if you will, of salvation. The answer to their prayers was even better than what they prayed. They said, just remove the snakes. God did better than that. He healed them by his miraculous power. Sometimes we limit God by what we pray and what we think God can do. God always does better than what we could ever imagine. And here he's brought to them a plan of salvation in their desperate, dire, oh, listen, in a time of great danger, in a time of great loss, panic, crying, desperate, running, trying to find an antidote, trying to find an antiserum, trying to find answers, God brings it all to the place of salvation. God brings it crystal clear on how to live if you've been bitten by these snakes. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like snakes. Do you? I've heard people say the only good snake is a dead snake, right? The only kind we like, the ones that are dead. I remember one time when I worked in Hickory, North Carolina, I went out to the tool shed. They had a place at the church where they kept tools. And I remember looking for something. I don't know if it was a hammer or what it was, but I noticed a shiny rope. And what got me was how shiny this black rope was. I thought, well, why would someone have a shiny rope? Maybe it's a whip. It can't be in just a normal rope. Maybe it's made out of nylon. It's so shiny. And what's interesting about the end of that rope, it has a tapered end. I've never seen a rope like that. And so I began to look at it, and it was just a few feet in front of me, and I began to trace it where it was going. It made its way up the shelf, up a ladder, and then it came over onto the workbench, and then back to the ladder. It came, and there was the other end of that, what I thought was just a shiny rope. It was 
was a great big long chicken snake. How many of you know what a long chicken snake it looks like? Big old black snake, right? In Tennessee, we had lots of them. North Carolina evidently has lots of them. I met one that day, and I wasn't happy. It scared me to death. And he was just looking at me like that right there. And I was down here trying to figure out the rope, and there he was. And uh, my grandma used to say, if you're looking for something, it was right there. If it had been a snake, it had bit you. And uh, I, I honestly thought that thing could have bitten me that day. But it didn't. It didn't. And we got rid of him. But uh, there's something about snakes that just, oh, you know, it brings a sense of fear. It brings a sense of dread. Uh, if people like snakes, they are weird, you know. And so it, it just goes to figure that no one likes these snakes. They are a symbol of evil. Uh, they just are. And, uh, you know, because in the, in the Genesis where man had fallen there in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve fallen into sin, it was that serpent more subtle than any beast of the field. And he comes in there stealth and subtle and begins to question God and making Eve question God. And through the, through the work of this subtle creature, this something that we now dread, this, this, this animal that has now been a reptile, that has now been cursed to crawl on its belly, nobody likes. But I want to tell you something, friend. This, in this story, is more than just a plain old black chicken snake. We're talking about something that was very dangerous, very lethal, and very plentiful. I want you to notice with me about these serpents here in Numbers chapter 21. Notice with me, first of all, number one, the place of these serpents, the place. Israel in Numbers chapter 21, Canaan land is just in sight. They are now at the end of their 40 years. They have been traveling for some time, and you'd think now that they're on the threshold of going over into the promised land, the people would be excited. There would be some positive talk. There would be some, oh boy, I can't wait. Just a few more days. I can see it just yonder way. And in their travels, they really are coming to the end of 40 years of watching nothing but desert land, people dying, graves everywhere for everyone that God pronounced judgment upon, 20 and older, died there in that wilderness wandering. And that wandering is wrapping up. They're coming now, the number's 21, and again, they're at the threshold, but something happens. Something happens that I think the devil does many times even in our own lives. That just before we step over into the blessings of God, now hear me out, a setback happens. A setback. A discouraging circumstance raises up its ugly head. I mean, right when they're getting ready to say, hey, 40 years is over, let's go. Let's go into the promised land. And, uh, and a setback, what was it? If you back up to chapter 20, you'll read the story of what verse 4 was talking about. Verse 4, it says, They came by way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. Back up to chapter 20, look at verse 20. Chapter 20, verse 20. And he said, Thou shalt not go through. And Edom came out against him 
with much people with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border. Here's what happened. They got to the border, and all they got to do is go through Edom, and then they're there. But for whatever reason, Edom, no way, not going to do it. He felt threatened by Israel and said, you're going to have to go the long way around. And the people, in a sense, bowed their head, tucked their tail between their legs, got all angry and said, can't we just go through? I mean, just a little ways. We're not going to touch a thing. We promise we won't pick one grape. We just want to go through to get to the other side. Adam said, no, you're going to go around. And here they go. Pack up your bags, boys. We got to go back into the wilderness. We can't go through the door here. We have gotten a setback. And you know what they did with that setback? The Bible says in chapter 21, verse 5, and the people spake against God. They could have pointed their fingers at Edom. They could have said what an unreasonable people these are. But you know what they do? They blame God. They got this far, this close, with one setback, and now they're so discouraged. And now they're so brokenhearted. And now it's like, oh, no, how much longer are we going to have to go through the wilderness? And here's what happens. They began to become, the Bible says, much discouraged. Much discouraged. And this discouragement is not just a hang your head, woe is me. This is an absolute put your foot down, raise your fist on high, and say, God, what next? Lord, how much more can I take? And for whatever reason, they began to murmur and complain. And I don't know what was wrong with them, but they began to complain about everything. They talked about they didn't like the white bread. And they didn't like the fact they didn't have water. Listen, they've been saying that for 40 years. That's what their papals used to say that got them in trouble and found themselves graves in the wilderness. This is old rhetoric that they heard growing up. Now they've adopted it. Now they're saying it. This is the new generation getting ready to go into the promised land and with one setback they're mad at God it's amazing how we do that it's amazing how some of the discouraging news will come to us and immediately you know what we do we blame God I want to tell you something you better watch discouragement if you don't fix discouragement if you don't get that under control and give it to God you'll start blaming God for it Ultimately, everything that happens to us in our minds will blame a sovereign God. And I'm going to tell you what discouragement should do. It should make us run to God. It should make us depend upon the Lord. It should make us say, God, again, I've hit this wall. Again, I've met the devil waking up this morning. Again, Lord, I need your power. You know what's interesting? This could have been an opportunity for them to get down on their knees and trust God again. But it's amazing how they begin to blame God instead of trusting God. Many of our discouragements, friends, ought to be the one thing that God uses to make us run to him to make us look to Him. Do you know that's why God gives us trials in our life? So we'll learn to depend upon Him. We'll lean hard upon Him and find Him faithful, find Him true. You're not going to learn that in the ease, 
timed. You're not going to learn that in the shade. You're not going to learn that in good times. You know when you find God faithful. You know when you find him sweet. You know when you find God that best friend you've ever had. It's when you're down on your luck, have no place to turn. There's nobody to look to. But I want to tell you there's an everlasting arm and his name is Jesus Christ. And you can lean on him. You can trust Him. You can know that through His love and through His grace, He'll get you through another day. The very God that we blame ought to be the God that we embrace and look to and trust and pray. Oh, but no, they blame God. Oh, the place, the place of these serpents. So what does God do? Here it happens now. We look at the plague. What is this plague? It's fiery serpents. Fiery serpents. Now, why are they called fiery? In fact, when Moses was told to build a serpent out of brass and put it on a pole, he said, make it a fiery serpent. He didn't say just get any old snake. It has to be a fiery one. It has to be the very ones that are causing all the trouble, all the evil, all the wickedness, all the death. Take that serpent, make one like that serpent of brass on a pole. Hmm. What are these fiery servants? Many scholars believe that they're fiery because when they bite you, when they latch on to you, it burns like fire. Could be. Do you know that there is in northern Africa a cobra, a cobra that is known as the red spitting cobra. They're colored red. And what they do when they feel threatened, they will rise up and expand their hood. You've seen cobras do that. And then they spit their venom right into the victim's eye. And when that happens, it brings a burning, burning searing of the eyes that, uh, that just really just paralyzes their victim. Maybe that's why they call these northern uh, cobras from Egypt these fiery serpents. Uh, some believe that they're called fiery serpents because of their color. If you look up the Egyptian cobra, you'll find many of them are in the color of copper and red. And if you think about it, sure enough, it would look like fire if you saw thousands upon untold thousands crawling on the ground, coming off the hillsides down to where you're encamped. I can imagine what it must have been that day when God sent those fiery serpents to look over and see them actually covering the ground and coming toward them. It'd be like watching a forest fire as the sun bears down upon their copper color. It could be like it was a rolling fire heading toward them. They probably looked at that and thought, what is that? Is that a fire? Has somebody set something on fire? No, it's serpents. It's fiery serpents. Can you imagine how they ran and how they tried to hide and they would find them inside their tents. They'd find them where they work in the fields. They'd find them down yonder by the water where they washed their dishes everywhere they turned. There were these fiery serpents. You know, this plague was everywhere. Their bite was lethal. And you know what's interesting? They're not going away. It must have been there for some time. In fact, when the people came to Moses, they admitted, they said, we've sinned against We've sinned against the Lord. And verse 7, We have sinned against, for we have spoken against the Lord, against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents. Evidently, they must have been everywhere, and the only answer was, God, just get them out of here. Get them out. Can God take them away? They're everywhere. And by the way, there was no anti-venom. 
There was no cure, no hospitals. It, to them, they knew immediately that this was, now watch this, a supernatural phenomenon. They didn't run to Moses and say, where's your team? You know, men with, with machetes, tools. We've got to take these serpents out. Where is your game plan? Where is, where is your delta team that's going to deal with these serpents? Can we not figure out a way? They didn't do that. They knew immediately because of the fact there were so many of them. There were fiery serpents and people were dying. They knew because of their rebellion, God Almighty had in a spiritual, supernatural way sent these fiery serpents. They knew it was a supernatural phenomenon. And this generation that blamed God, interesting, they're the first ones to admit to God, it is me, Lord. It is me. We have spoken against the Lord. They knew it was of God because it was a God-like judgment that was upon them, the plague. I go now to the pole. This is the exciting part. We get to the pole. That was the antidote. That was the answer. The Lord, in verse 8, said to Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. Now, that's a pretty good plan, but why a pole? As you know, serpents crawl on the ground, so if you're going to see one, you'd have to what? Look down. But if you're going to save many people, you're going to have to get it high in the air. And that pole was raised so men and women and boys and girls could see. Had to be lifted. Jesus said, and if I... If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. You see, when it comes to the message of the cross, it has to be lifted. You can't hide it under a bushel. It can't be the best kept secret. It can't be our four and no more. This church has an obligation to Ocala, Florida, and the rest of the world, and that is to lift high the message of the cross. You know why a pole? That pole is for lifting, yes, and for seeing. But that pole is for depicting the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hmm. But why a serpent? I mean, if we're going to exalt the Lord in his salvation, why not a lamb? After all, Abraham, when he was getting ready to raise the knife and kill his own son, Isaac, God provided a ram caught in a thicket. Why can't we have a lamb or a ram? Why a serpent? Oh, very important. Why a serpent to depict Jesus Christ? It's because of what that serpent represented. It was not just any snake. It was that fiery Serpent that was causing all the trouble. Because the serpent represented the evil. And that pole represented the cross. So you take the evil and you put it on the pole. That evil on the pole properly, doctrinally, and thank God redemptively represents Jesus Christ when he hung on Calvary. You see, when those people saw the fiery serpent, they saw a depiction of the judgment of God upon sin. Because it wasn't just a fiery serpent, but a, watch this now, a brazen serpent made out of brass. How do you do this? Well, you've got to put it in fire. 
And you've got to mold it and make it and burn it. And once you make it out of brass, now you've got a symbol that not only symbolizes evil on a cross, but an evil. Watch this now. Evil on a cross that has faced judgment. You see, brass throughout the Old Testament, brass was always, even throughout the Bible, brass was a picture of the judgment of God. Do you know that when God gave Moses the instructions in Leviticus on how to bring forth a burnt offering, that they had to lay it upon the what? Brazen altar. They took an altar, built it out of shittim wood, and then overlaid it with gold? No. Brass. And then they had meat hooks, tools, saucepans, catching the blood, and also the ashes. All of those instruments that were used at the altar, that were used in burnt sacrifices for sin, all of those tools had to be made out of what? Iron? Gold? Silver? No. The very metal that depicts the judgment of God. Brass. There's a reason for this. Brass is saying basically this. This is a picture of the judgment of God. And folks, when you see Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, I remember when I first saw it. I'm not talking about some play or, or some Easter cantata. I'm talking about the day the Holy Ghost painted the picture to a 15-year-old boy that a Savior loved me enough to die for me. I saw him for the first time hanging on an old rugged cross, dying and bleeding for me. And that's what saved my soul, friend. Oh, thank God for the day that Christ in his love lifted me, saving my soul when I saw him hanging on an old rugged cross. When you see that cross, it's a picture of sin. But not just sin, sin being judged. There was a reason why the Father said to the Son, you've got to go. You've got to die on a cross. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed and said, Lord, if it be possible, could this cup pass from me and all the deafening silence, the deafening answer that came back from God was a deafening silence for there is no other way. You must die. And when Jesus was on that cross, you remember when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I want to tell you why the Father turned his back on the Son, why the earth went through six hours of pitch darkness. I want to tell you why Jesus hung there, friend, on an old rugged cross. God looked upon his Son, and that Son was bleeding and dying on the cross, having been rejected because he took your sin and mine. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might know and we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, it wasn't his sin. It was our sin. And when Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary, he took your sin and mine. He took it all upon his shoulders. And when he hung there and died, he was that brazen serpent, that picture of the judgment of God. And Jesus literally took your judgment and mine when he hung on that cross. You see, when you look at a Savior hanging on the cross, it's more than just someone who was willing. It's more than just someone who had pity on sinners. It was someone who loved you enough to take your place and die for your sin. It was a judged serpent. That's why it was made of brass. 
Well, we come all the way to the promise. We have the pole. Now here's the promise. Verse 8, the very last phrase says, When he looketh upon it shall live. Look and what? Live. Look and live, my brother, live. Look to Jesus now and what? Live. I have a story to tell. It's happy, glorious news that Jesus died on an old rugged cross so you may look to him and live. So simple message, is it not? They didn't have to pay money, make any promises. They didn't have to travel a long distance. It was right there in the camp. Set up on a pole for everyone to see. All you had to do is look and live. People were dying, though. And I'm sure the message got out. How do you get probably 2 million people by this time? How do you get the word out to 2 million people? Word of mouth. Nothing travels like it. I can imagine the first few that got healed, how it must have been a celebration. Because their daddy was dying. Nobody, nobody had an answer. These snakes are everywhere. People were dying. And all of a sudden, families are being restored. Celebrations are happening. I mean, people are elated. And the word is spreading like wildfire. And I mean, the word is getting out where they're, they're able to live. All you have to do is go back and look. There where Moses is, there's a raised serpent on a brass pole. You will be healed. And the word got out. But you know the reaction of many, I'm sure, is predictable. Predictable. And you know how it goes. Because it's the same way it happens today. Do you know that salvation is a simple plan? God didn't make going to heaven hard. Our pride made it hard. Oh, no, it's not, it's not a hard man. A five-year-old child can be saved by the grace of God. My wife got saved when she was five. She put her faith in Jesus Christ. God saved her soul. Oh, it's not hard. God's never made it hard. It's not hard to reach out by faith. A childlike faith is what God requires anyway. It's amazing. But you know how predictable it is. People in their pride says, no, there's got to be a better way, a different way, a more civilized way. Hmm. So predictable, is it not? I can imagine a little girl coming back to the tent where daddy is hurt, where he's been bitten, and he's trying to make his way, he's trying to put on a cold pack, he's trying to somehow get the venom out of his leg, and his little daughter comes running into the camp, Daddy, 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 guess what? I just heard good news. There's an answer for your snake bite. You don't have to die, Daddy. You don't have to die. What is it? It's Moses. He said if there's a brazen serpent that God told him after he had prayed, God showed him what to do. And all you had to do, Daddy, is come with me. Down yonder where the pole is, there is a brazen serpent. And Moses said, if you'll just look, you'll live. What? You, are you kidding me? How absurd. That's ridiculous. In fact... That's not even scientifically possible. The science says you can't do that. Amen. 
Doesn't make sense to me. Doesn't, hey, you mean Moses? I'm tired of Moses. I'm tired of his preaching. I'm tired of his authority. I'm tired of his being the man of God. I don't think so, honey. But daddy, daddy, please. No. I don't have time for all that religion. I don't have time for all that church stuff. That's just a bunch of religion. It's a crutch for people to make them feel good. I'll figure this out. I'll make my way. I am my own man. Three hours later, he's dead. Dead. I can imagine that. Why? I've seen it in my ministry. I've seen it to where people, even on their deathbeds, They'll call the preacher, and I run in there with my Bible, and I say to these people on their deathbeds, and it's happened to me once, more than once, and I go to them and say, oh, dear friend, if you but put your faith in Jesus, he'll rescue your soul. He'll make you brand new. The thief on the cross, he cried out in his last hour, God said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And I would give people that wonderful news that God is able to save their soul. And I've seen them raise their hands in resistance and say not interested get out of the room had a man in my church just last Sunday missionary out of our own church he texted me and said my neighbor is going to die I feel led to go give him the gospel he is by his, his background is Buddha religion and he said I pray for me pray for me I'm going to go talk to him today I got that message only to find out when I got to church he said he did not want to hear. He, he basically asked me to leave. Resisted it. Such a simple message, but somehow people resist it. It's the only answer for the soul. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Only one way, yet it's resisted. And yet it's so simple. But I can imagine as predictive and as realistic it is the other way of how it worked. For it worked for me the day I got saved. A mother comes running into the tent. She's elated. She's excited, just like the little girl was earlier. And she comes in and she says, Oh, husband, I found out good news. There is, a, there is an antidote. There is a way of saving our daughter. And this father sits there inside of that tent. He's holding his own little daughter. And she's struggling to breathe. And he looks up at her and says, What are you talking about? She says, Oh, honey, please listen to me. Moses has sought the face of God. There's been a way provided. A brazen serpent is on a pole. All we got to do is get her to see the, see the, see the brazen serpent. You're saying that's all we have to do? My little girl is dying, and you're telling me that's all she has to do, and she'll live? Yes, honey, and people are talking about it. Everywhere you go, people are excited. I know the tents next door. They're excited. They're celebrating. They got their children back. Okay, and I imagine this husband his little daughter and he's wrapping her up and she's still struggling she begins to moan as he picks her up oh it hurts so bad that fiery venom is inside of her bloodstream and there's no answer and oh she's aching and moaning and groaning her eyes are closed and she's in breathing pain and he begins to carry her and as he begins to carry her he can hear other tents where they're already crying where they're already moaning and groaning because their children and their parents and grandparents have died just recently and people are dying everywhere but he works his way all through the carnage and through the weeping and through the wailing he gets to where the crowds are and sure enough 
There's the pole. He takes his daughter, and yet it's a great distance. He hikes, picks her up a little bit like this, and he begins to wake her up, and he pulls back the veil, and he says, Honey, just look. Look yonder. Daddy has some good news. Moses, the man of God, has a brazen serpent. All you got to do, honey, is look. She's like, Daddy, I can't. I'm hurting. I don't know what you're talking about. And he thinks to himself, We got to do something. I can't get her to do this. And so he begins to fight his way through the crowd to get a little bit closer because he's having such a hard time looking and opening her eyes and finally he gets her one more time. This time the mother's on the other end said, honey please look honey please. And so the little girl begins to open her eyes and sure enough right there just feet away is that brazen serpent. And as soon as her eyes caught on to that brazen serpent, I mean that venom and burning began to flee away and breath became her strength and life became her body. Her life became, her body became life anew and she woke up and she says, Daddy, everything's okay. Everything is fine. I saw the cross. Everything's going to be okay. I want to tell you, friend, I remember the night I got saved. I remember telling my mom and my daddy, Jesus just saved my soul. Now listen, friend, the day you come to Christ, everything's going to be okay. It doesn't matter what happens in this world. It doesn't matter what the devil may bring you. If your faith is in Jesus Christ and you know him as your Lord and Savior, everything's going to be okay. Because you have found life and you have found it in Jesus Christ, the one who bled and died for you. Oh, yes. It's so predictable. But what a promise. Just look and live. Look. Look ye all ends of the earth. Lift up your eyes. There is a salvation. His name is Jesus. The only Lord. The only sovereign God. Who gave his only begotten son. Bleed and die on a no rugged cross. And if you will look. You'll live. Have you seen it? Have you said yes to him? Let's pray.